The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father and sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jamie. I want to add my welcome to Donna's, to those of you who are gathered in person, as well as those of you who are online. Welcome to National Presbyterian Church this morning. This morning we want to begin a, a look at uh, one of the lesser known books in the New Testament. Over these next few weeks we'll be reading together 1 Peter. Now, if you were one of many who have made a New Year's resolution to be more faithful in reading Scripture and prayer, this would be a great place to start. I might even suggest that you dust off of your uh, memory muscles and try to memorize certain sections that strike you as particularly important. And no passage will be more significant to commit to memory than the scripture that we will be looking at this morning and next week, the first nine verses of this little letter to 1 Peter. So if you're looking for a place to begin, there will be no test. You will not be tested on this, but give it a try. Because in my experience, I'm a terrible memorizer, but I'm always grateful for the effort that I make in terms of having the recall and the scriptures having more of an anchored place in my imagination and therefore in the formation of my life. I commend it to you if you've never done it before. First Peter. It's been more than a few years since I was honored to make the acquaintance of one of the most impressive men that I've ever met in my life. He had grown up in a Muslim family in East Africa but as a young man had come to faith in Jesus Christ through an encounter he had with Christ in a dream. As it turns out, since I've met this man, I've heard many other stories about Muslims in parts of the world that are closed in formal ways to the gospel, but that closure is no barrier to the Spirit of God who is reaching many through dreams and miracles. My friend in coming to profess Christ knew that he risked alienation from his culture, his village, and his family. But today, this man, whose name I am not at liberty to mention, is still faithfully at work in those spiritual borderlands between Islam and the Christian faith. His life, day to day, lived entirely in dependence upon the Lord. As I think of him, I'm reminded that many of the world's Christians live in similar circumstances where they stand to pay a terrific price for their faithfulness and loyalty and allegiance to Jesus. I don't know everybody in this room 
And I imagine that some of us have faced overt persecution for our faith, but I would guess not too many. No doubt American Christians feel like we are more on the defensive now than, say, 30 years ago. In conversations I have with students, they tell me the campus can be a pretty contentious place in which to try to bear witness to Christ. And I've known lots of folks in various vocations who have said something similar. But rather than being prickly or terrified or defensive about these shifts, we might instead make the most of the challenge by being better grounded and prepared to engage with kindness and patience those who disagree with us. After all, the West is no longer the center of Christendom. That privilege belongs to the Southern and the Eastern hemispheres now. And remember that in many cases, Christians in those parts of the world are encountering overt persecution as they seek to be faithful to Christ. We've been a little spoiled here in the West because the fact is that persecution has always been something that the church has contended with. It's no new thing. From its inception, through the man who gave his life to a hostile crowd on the Friday that we call good, the faith has been forged and shaped in the crucible of persecution. Think back to the early chapters in the book of Acts, especially chapters 7 and 8 and the stoning of Stephen. It was as the result of the persecution of those Christians and their dispersion, they took the gospel with them. Sometimes the persecution, the persecutors become the persecuted as is the case with Paul. Others, who at first quailed at the threat of hostility, think about those first disciples locked behind closed doors because they were afraid that what had happened to their Savior was about to happen to them. They eventually took courage as they encountered the risen Christ, and then they stood their ground among repeated trials and difficulties. That was surely the case with the Apostle Peter, who knew from his own experience of betraying Christ that one could expect to be put to the test publicly for one's allegiance. But if that's all you know about the brash fisherman, Peter, is that he was the one who betrayed Christ three times at the moment of testing, then this little letter that we are about to jump into should be allowed to tell us the rest of the story. We don't know much about Peter after his reinstatement by Jesus in the, one of the most lovely moments in, in all of Scripture in John chapter 21. What we do know is that he became a leader in the early church, and we know that he struggled, especially with the inclusion of Gentiles, non-Jews, in the covenant family of God. But in the end, he overcame those challenges, or perhaps the Lord overcame them in him. And he followed Paul to Rome, where tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down at his own insistence, not thinking himself worthy even to die in the same manner as his Lord. 
this little letter of 1 Peter, written probably from Rome around the year 64 AD, comes out of the personal recognition on the part of Peter that the Christian life entails persecution and, su and suffering. We in the West are used to asking, why has the Lord allowed this hardship to come upon me? As if we ought to expect an easy course through life. But we are in the minority historically of those who have sought to follow Christ. They have known better than we that the Christian life entails suffering, hardship, and persecution. And here Peter is writing to Christians who are spread throughout the five provinces of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, perhaps areas that Peter did not know very well, if at all, but there were Christians who nevertheless were being persecuted for their faith in Christ, and Peter is writing them with this question in mind. How does one live faithfully the Christian life, especially in a hostile environment? Jamie just read for us the first lines of Peter's letter. I want us to take another look at them. It's a brief text. Pull out your bulletin. You can follow along. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen and destined by God the Father, sanctified by the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled by Christ's blood. May grace and peace be yours in abundance. Did you notice there that even in this opening greeting, Peter is already addressing that question. How do we live? What resources do we have whereby we might live a faithful life in the face of persecution? Peter begins by affirming what is most important to the identity of his audience. He's asking them, who are you? It is the critical question the answer to which will shape your life, will determine its trajectory and its priorities. Years ago, a friend and I, a friend and I were talking about how uh, her, our parents reared us, the things that we learned. When she was in high school, not far away from here in Maryland, her dad would say to her before she left, on, left the house on a date, just remember who you are, sweetheart. My friend commented, that's all my dad needed to say to me. If you know who you are, a lot of questions are already answered for you, aren't they? If you know who you are, you don't need to waste your time on things that aren't in keeping with who you know yourself to be. The sad thing is that it seems like the question of personal identity is very much up for grabs in every aspect of our cultural moment. Some of that, I think, is rooted in families that are in crisis, when a family never forms, or when a family falls apart, it leaves holes. Where will someone have those crucial questions of identity answered? Do I have a place? Am I loved? What sort of meaning can I make out of this crisis that is my family? 
that is my life. For a host of reasons, we become ever more vulnerable to counterfeits that are everywhere on offer. Counterfeits that would seek to answer falsely the questions that all of us feel and face. But those counterfeits serve us poorly. Kids struggle to find a group that would give them that identity. But it's not just children who struggle with that question, is it? Who are you? When we're asked that question, many of us, I think, define ourselves in terms of our vocation, our profession. We answer, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a programmer, I'm a consultant. Of course, that's part of the answer. But what else is there to you? It's a critical question, this question of identity. And there is a competition going on for yours. Peter knows this. He might have written a long time ago, but he knows this. He knows it because he tried to answer that question himself and he failed miserably. And so he looks elsewhere to explain. And he begins not with himself, but with God. And so he writes to the saints in Turkey by calling them God's elect. He names them according to their allegiance to God, to the fact that God himself has chosen them. From the opening line, Peter is, confer, is concerned to affirm who his audience is and what is the defining mark of their identity? That they belong to God, that they are God's chosen. And not just that, he doesn't stop there. Not only are they God's chosen, but did you notice? They are exiles. They are not at home in the world as it is. Do you feel that? I think all of us who are paying attention wonder. We don't feel at home in this world as it is. And if you're serious about your allegiance to Jesus Christ, you might especially feel not at home in this broken world. Those Asia Minor Christians were part of a larger plan because they had been chosen by God. You know, a lot of ink has been <laughs> spilled theologically around questions of what does God know? What's the relationship between predestination and free will? In almost every new members class that I've ever taught among folks who have joined the church in my previous congregation, only about 10% of the folks who joined came from a Presbyterian background. So we always had to talk about things like infant baptism, and we had to talk about predestination. Aren't you the church that believes in predestination? And they'd say it with a sneer until I got finished with them, and then they thanked me. <laughs> so enlightened. Would it surprise you, though, I were to say that the New in the New Testament, predestination almost never functions as an abstract theological question. Something like, what is the relationship between predestination and free will? It's never like that. Instead, the doctrine, the idea of predestination, of God's foreknowledge, as it appears in Scripture, almost always functions as a word of assurance 
and guarantee in the face of trouble and uncertainty. Don't you know that you're part of God's plan? Even the troubles that you are enduring are known by God, have been foreseen by God, that God had figured this out a long time ago. That's why he sent his son. That's certainly how Peter uses this idea of foreknowledge in our passage. This is not by chance, friends, that you have heard the gospel and responded. God is at the heart of the decision that you made for him. But Peter's not done yet, is he? These first two verses are theologically loaded. Not only are you chosen by God, but you have been given the Spirit of God who is at work in you to complete God's plan and to bring you to perfection. So just as it was not solely a matter of your decision to believe in Christ, so it is not an ent entirely a matter of the strength of your will that you follow him. Even as he has called you, so he will keep you. And who do you think made it possible for you to enter into any kind of relationship with God? It was Jesus Christ, the mediator, says Peter, who shed his blood to buy you, to ransom you, to forgive your guilt, and to offer you an avenue of return. So here, in these first two verses of this little letter to Christians who are under pressure, Peter is already laying the groundwork in answer to the question of Christian identity. Christian, who are you? You are chosen by God. According to his eternal plan, you have been bought with a price through the sacrifice of his son. And you have been filled with the Holy Spirit to bring you to perfection and completion. In a word, you yourself in Jesus Christ are a temple of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You were made to live for him, in him, and through him. In his life, you find your identity. And it is more definitive for the shape of your life than any profession, any social club to which you might belong, or any neighborhood association, even any family. Because you are his, you know who you are. And in the end, that is determinative. In the town of Stepanovan, I hope I'm saying that right, it's a small village in Armenia. There was a woman who everyone called Palisan's wife. She had her own name, but everyone insisted on calling her by her husband's name, and it was not a chauvinistic insult. In 1988, an earthquake rocked the country. Palisson rushed from his work to the elementary school where his son was a student. The facade of the building was crumbling, but he entered and he began to push children outside. After saving 28 young lives, the building collapsed and killed Palisson. So the people of Stepano Stepanovan sorry, honor his memory and his widow by calling her Palisson's wife. And she wears the title 
proudly. Our identity, our honor, is to be called a disciple of Jesus Christ, who gave his life for ours. We live first to last to his glory, in him, by him, through him. It's who we are. And when situations present themselves that rock our world, our identity in Christ ought to shape our response to those circumstances. I think we live in really confusing times. We're not under threat from Roman persecution, as Peter's audience was, nor are we day-to-day -day living with the possibility of religious violence as is the case with my friend in East Africa. And yet it feels like we are deeply uncertain about who we are. On the one hand, we are told that we alone as individuals can know who we are, that it's up to us to know that for ourselves, to strip away all of the negative influences so that we can find the pure kernel of self that must exist somewhere deep within our authentic selves. And yet for all of this, I can't remember a time when we seem so afraid of making the wrong choice, of public shaming. I can't remember a time when we've been so concerned with a particular group's approval, whatever that group is. Social media is often blamed, and it's a player, no doubt. But my guess is that social media has only served to expose what is a deep confusion in our culture, which is rooted in a dramatic misunderstanding of freedom and the exaltation of the individual. George MacDonald was a 19th century Scottish writer. He was a big influence on G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and many others. And he insisted, the first principle of hell is this, I am my own. He understood that by insisting on autonomy, as our first parents did, we become vulnerable to powers that only rejoice in our destruction. Left to ourselves to figure it all out, we are anxious and uncertain, one moment proud and arrogant, and the next fearful. Which makes me wonder if there's not a better place to begin than with the question, who am I? Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor arrested by the Nazis for his involvement in a plot to kill Adolf Hitler. While in prison, shortly before his own execution, he was wrestling with this very question as a Christian pastor. And he penned these words under the heading, Who am I? Who am I? 
They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my guards freely and friendly and clearly, as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune, equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself, a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, that I am thine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. At that moment, when his life was required of him, Bonhoeffer came to know that the comfort and the conviction that he sought was not to be found in the anxiety and confusion of his own heart and mind, in his own estimation of his identity. Instead, echoing the wisdom of Peter in these first lines of his letter, and indeed echoing the last words of Jesus, who said, as he hung upon the cross, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. The pivotal question is not, who am I, but whose? Let's pray together. We know the confusion in our own hearts and minds, O oh Lord, although not in the crisis moment that Bonhoeffer himself faced. We know quite, not quite how to answer the question, who am I? But we are gathered as those today who can say definitively that because of Jesus Christ, 
And because of your grace and mercy in our lives, we belong to you, heart, soul, body, and mind. And we pray that that might be the bedrock upon which we build our lives, the bedrock upon which we face the challenges and turmoil of life that inevitably come. That somehow, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might enable us to bear faithful witness to our neighbors in contentious times, that we would not shy away from the grace that we have come to know in Christ, but that instead, with joy and hope, we would invite others to taste and see that the Lord is good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.